let us do evil, shall we do evil that good may come? And Jesus says that's the succinct definition of the pervert. Do evil. Has anybody ever said to you, we have to do this evil so that good will come out of it? So uh, the subject sides with the law in the attempt to escape its punishing effect and to partake of its surplus enjoyment of forbidden desire. I don't know if this is... uh, The idea is, you know, think back in the garden when God said, "You, you know, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge good and evil. The perverse position is to say, oh, God's holding out on us. We need, to, we need to eat of it so we can get at the good. That's precisely what Zizek's picture of the pervert is. Oh, the law is a screen that's shielding us from the good stuff. And so you break through the law or you in some way become a, a, you know, a servant of the law. Now this, this all gets bizarre, but wait a minute, do we know perverts? <laughs> you know, Pee Wee Herman stands up in the movie theater and exposes himself. Oh, there are these people out there. So there is this perverse position. And so psychoanalytically, uh, this, you know, the, the, this, there's this strange relationship that you can see. These guys are all, by the way, clinicians. They're seeing these people, you know, Zizek's not. Luckily, Zizek's not. I hope Zizek's not counseling anybody. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so, uh, but we can we understand there are these such people. But then you tie it in, and what Zizek is saying, well, this is actually a philosophical, theological construct. So when Zizek talks about God as a pervert, you know, he, he's an atheist, right? So he means this God that is a pervert, none of us want to believe. You know, that that probably shouldn't be our view of God, right? If you have a perverse relation or perverse view of God, it would probably better to be an atheist. Uh, I I mean, I I mean this. If you are a Roman 7 Christian, I think it's probably better that you're just a complete atheist because your view of God will be this kind of perverse understanding of who God is. Um, so, the prohibition then is in 7.7 is a little bit strange. Is there a command somewhere that says, thou shalt not covet? Do you, is there, where in scripture does it say, thou shalt not covet? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, huh? The Ten Commandments. In, in Exodus, it says, and this is the argument, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox. In other words, it doesn't say you shall not covet. It says you shall not covet these things. Um, we could understand that you might control your desire for your neighbor's ox, or his you know house, or... But can you control, can you cease desiring? You shall not covet. And that's what many scholars have noticed about what Paul is doing there in that passage. He's actually foreshortened. He's, you know, he's created a command, you shall not desire. It's very similar to Buddha, you know, Buddha's, how do you stop desire? Do you desire not to desire? You know, you shall not think of pink elephants. Did you just break the law? 
what Agamben and Zizek are saying that this is the way and, and what they're saying about Paul is that what Paul is portraying here is a law that gives rise to its own transgression come on in hello, hello. Uh, that is that and that's Paul's description I did not know what it was to covet apart from the law that says thou shalt not covet and so the, the very encounter with the law is equated, it's synonymous with the transgression. Uh, it's a perverse law. It's not that the law is the problem. Again, who's the pervert? It's the one who has fallen. It's the one who has encountered this law. So the, the command generates what it forbids. And that's, that's what many people think about the formula. That's what Agamben is saying about that formula. Uh, the, the idea of forbidden desire, you know, in Genesis 3, uh, that what is taking place if we're in this understanding is if you do go with Bonhoeffer, you know, that with the fall, man has become the arbiter. And he's become zealous for the law. But not the law of God, he's become zealous for his own ethical system, for the, his own... Uh, you know, the enacting of the law. And so the desire is for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or for an ethic or righteousness that is one's own. Far from drawing one closer to, to life in God, this, uh, uh, this law put into, is part of sin. It displaces God. Remember, God is not really in Romans 7. He's only there as lawgiver. Uh, and so our perception of God from a Romans 7 perspective is this perverse God. Is this, you know, and this is, the, this is the travesty of this. If we don't get the difference between Romans 7 and 8, uh, the, the very view of God that you have in Romans, in, in Romans 7, I believe is what Paul is describing as a fallen understanding of who God is. So apart from God, we can, you know, this is Derrida. Derrida, by the way, Derrida and Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel are two of the key philosophical figures. You know, I would put Hegel, I know it's, I would put him even in the, but they're they're both giving us a reading of Genesis 3. I mean, neither one of them believe it, but what they're saying about Genesis 3 is that this gives us uh, the Hegelian dialectic? You know, it's the identity. It's Derrida's identity through difference, and, but in Lacan, the identity through difference is taken up into the self. It is constitutive of the self. You have the difference constituted between the I, the ego, and the law. Um, so you know, you the I don't is that. When I say that the first time, I think it's always confusing to people. But if you think about it, it's it's based on a kind of inherent contradiction, and this is Derrida's whole point with it. That identity through difference, you posit a kind of absolute difference that's driving at complete sameness. Um, that it's violent when you're talking about human personality. You know, it's very easy to illustrate this. How do you do identity? Well, I'm an American. Are you, are you American? Or are you one of them foreigners? 
And so that we do identity on the basis of a closed identity, inside and outside, and what you would do to the other is in some way obliterate the other. This is Derrida's whole point about identity through difference, that it's necessarily violent and unjust. Uh, And this is Paul's point, is where the law is sin, sin will establish the law, right? Shall I sin that grace may abound? Yes. Is the law sin? Yes. In this perverse understanding, uh, one who embodies this law is split in a kind of agonizing struggle. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So the system is closed. It's isolated from God. It has nothing, you know, with the purposes of God. It refers only to itself. You know, that, that, uh, the knowledge of good and evil is a dispossession or a displacement of God. And Paul poses this law. He says, there is another law waging war against the law of my mind. But it is the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law which dwells in my flesh. By the way, all this language is important because Paul is going to tell us why Christ died in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he's referring back to what he's just said in chapter 7. That we're working here, if you're following me, we're working on a, a, a revision of our atonement theory. Why did Jesus die? What is Jesus doing? Well, Paul's explaining this in in Romans 7 and 8. Our problem is not subjection to the law. Our problem is not that we've in some way made God angry. Our problem is that we're fallen subjects and we need to be remade. And that's Paul's picture in Romans 7 and 8. So if I, you know, I do the very thing uh, that I hate, my will has been subverted. Paul is describing somebody who cannot be righteous. He's describing this is his conclusion to his argument of a universal unrighteousness. None are righteous. No, there's not one. In chapter 3, he goes through a series of quotes from the Old Testament, all referencing the organs of speech, the mouth, the tongue, the, the throat. My throat is like an open grave. My tongue, you know, is, you know, or their tongues spew venom. They're, he's describing death-dealing language. And that is a universal problem. I think in Romans 7, he's given us the, this, the, you know, the, this, the explanation for what he's done in chapter 3. Um, Agamben's point here... Uh, The law here is no longer in tole, a norm that clearly prescribes or prohibits something. Instead, the law is the knowledge of guilt. Remember, remember by law, we're thinking perverse, fallen understanding. In Agamemnon's account, Paul's struggle is, uh, in Romans 7, 59 to 19, is is perfectly clear reading of the agonizing, I'm quoting Agamemnon, condition of a man faced with a law that has become entirely unobservable and as such only functions as a universal principle of imputation. Zizek doesn't reference verse 7 exactly, but he says, according to St. Paul, the law generates the desire to violate it. Uh, 
it generates, solicits its own transgression. Uh, you know, the invention of the superego in his example, think here of this perverse relationship within the self. You shall not kill, this is Zizek, is truncated into you shall not kill. The kill is set off from the prohibition and becomes the injunction to kill. So what Paul is doing with desire, Zizek says you can just go through the law and says, well, that's what's happening with all these, these laws. The law gives rise to its transgression, gives rise, you know, the topic here, to a, 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 a violence. So we could call this the subject of the law. But remember, the law, there's only, the law pertains only to those who break it. The only kind of law we have is broken law, right? That's the, the, in our human subjectivity. Uh, Paul says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. I'm one of the living dead. This is Jesus' picture, right? Of Oh, you're, you're walking around, but you're dead. This is what Freud is saying about the death drive. The thing that animates you is not life, it's death. The thing that animates, this is Paul's picture, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin within me. The second thing, that's the law. The second thing that's necessary, and this is what is usually missed in theology. Paul talks about the, nece- the deception. In other words, we're, throughout we've not really been talking about the law. We've been talking about a deception that sin deceived me, taking opportunity through the law. And so the explanation for the confusion be- between sin and the law is in seven ten to 11, in which... Paul says, it's sin that deceived me. You know, is he still following Genesis 3? Well, it seems like if you're in Genesis 3, Paul is just taking and, you know, the the serpent, you shall not die. You believe the lie, you shall not die. You embrace that lie and you die. Uh, The idea is it didn't end in Genesis 3, that what Paul is describing is a universal deception that is taken up into ourselves. Freud's not reading scripture, but he says this very thing. He says there is no immor- uh, uh, mortality. There is no mortality in the unconscious. That is that subconsciously, unconsciously, we are immortals. We are gods. We are, we're not subject to death. Uh, I can describe then, I've given you three things. The ego, and these are all, we can describe the inner workings of these things uh, as the dynamic of a lie. I'm just doing Lacan here in Zizek. Uh, That the ego is the the object the lie posits. Uh, Here is what we would save, you know, in our self-salvation system. And here's what Paul says needs to be crucified. Uh, the lust of the eyes, it's visual throughout. You know, Paul, uh, John talks about the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Paul talks about it in visual terms. Lacan talks about it as a visual gestalt. That we apprehend ourselves in the world through a visual, you know, think here of Plato, the mind's eye. I don't know if you've done much philosophy. Have you ever heard of Martin Jay? 
Martin Jay's done a whole book called Downcast Eyes. He does the history of what, and this is another kind of postmodern understanding, is that the way that philosophy is functioning then is in and through this kind of visual metaphor. Um, so the, the ego then is this uh, uh, thing that is subject to dissolution, right? You can undo it. It is, and in Lacan, that's what he's saying, death is. I, don't, I think he's mistaken here. But think of Adam and Eve, shame. Shame is the experience of the dissolution of self, I believe. Shame, you know, if we don't like talking about shame because it's so shameful. But uh, they're, they're naked and not ashamed prior to the fall, and then they're ashamed, and it says that the day they eat of it, they'll. I think they died. And I think shame, and that's the Old Testament picture in the Psalms, that shame is consistently linked with death and the grave. The ultimate shame, you know, in the think of Revelation here is to be, you know, you, you, the pretenders do not have, they're not clothed in the white robes of righteousness. So these are, these are strong biblical themes that we've almost completely passed over in a Western tradition. This is, this is 20 years of Japan. You know, shame is front and center in a, in a Japanese uh, context. Um, and uh, theology, though, has in the West focused on guilt. Why did Christ die? Well, because you're guilty. Yeah, wait a minute, though. Is that what Scripture is actually saying? In other words, there's this, this profound shame is something that's wrong with your entire self. Guilt, you know, you can pay for. You can just pay the parking ticket, pay the, the fine. Shame, you've got to run high. Um, so the, the, the whole thing that I'm describing, by the way, is what Paul's going to take up in Romans chapter 8. I think throughout Romans, he's describing then the need. You know, why did Christ die? He died at the beginning of Romans 8. That you, sh- you know, there is no more condemnation. So what he's been describing, what I'm describing to you, is the condemnation that we all suffer and can be saved from, not in some future tense, but the idea is that we're reconstituted, you know, we're born again, we're new subjects in Christ. That all actually means something. We can actually begin to run this down concretely. Um, in all of these guys, Lacan, Freud, Zizek, and Paul, when they talk about the I or the ego, they always, you know, with Paul it will be fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah, because there's no I by the time you get to chapter 8, uh, for uh, the idea, alienation is, you know, I've quoted this, is the imaginary as such. Why? Because there's this split. The very way in which you're constituted is in and through alienation. Why did Christ die? To overcome alienation, right? Reconciliation, that's what that word means. Um, and not, it is inclusive here. I'm doing a picture of the human subject, but don't get... In other words, I'm doing a picture of the sick subject, right? We're, we're talking, we're looking at the individual, but by the time we're in chapter 8, we're going to be talking about corporate identity. Um, so Paul, you know, is talking throughout about a split eye, that there is the law that holds out a fullness of being. What's the, what's the problem? Well, people imagine that there's life in the law. And there is, is there life in the law? 
You know, is that is that Paul's? That's not Paul's understanding. That's the false understanding. There was never a notion. You know, this is part of the new perspective on Paul that we've completely misunderstood what the law was about. But the law, the never, the idea was never that the law is life. Think here of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. The 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 commandment, the prohibition, points you to life, but does not you know, per se, contain life. God is, you know, life. God is alone the source of life. So, uh, you have the I, you have uh, then the law. And think here, you know, when we use the word law, we're tending to think of this objectified thing out there, but that's not the way Paul's using it, right? He's talking about something in your head. He's talking about, in a Freudian sense, the superego, the thing that's become a part of you, you know, your conscience, your understanding, even of good and evil. Uh, so the law is a part of our human personality. It's a part of our subjectivity. In this, and, and, and I'm talking perverse here, in a bad sense. We just sort of instinctively know, you know, we think we know good and evil. This is, you know, this is the big discussion in, uh, you, you know who, uh, Adolf Eichmann is. Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, you know, he's the guy that set up the death camps and and he he explains his reasoning and he uses the Kantian categorical imperative. He said, I had to do this thing because I would only will that which would be done that should be done universally. You didn't want me to break the law. My point being that our law keeping, our morality is radically evil. That's Hannah Arendt's picture, you know, of Eichmann. But that's Paul's picture of himself. It's because of his, uh, I was faultless in regard to the law, that he can count himself the chief of sinners. Because he's perverted, there's this perverse relationship to the law. So the medium of the law, this is the symbolic in Lacan and Zizek, or in in Freud, uh, the idea of... uh, the superego. Paul says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Through it, killed me. So Paul is continuing to describe how the, uh, sin distorts the law in relation to the sinful self. The command, you know, that's, this is the question. The command which promised life. That's the deception right? That's not the truth. That's the misunderstanding. This is the, you know, the commentators argue about this, but I think that if you get the whole context. And then the main thing, so we've got, I'm describing a tripartite self. Freud, you know, the ego, superego, id, Lacan, the symbolic, uh, the imaginary, and the real. The real is the thing that, um, so we have in Paul the ego, that's just his word I. We have the law. The third thing is uh, in any, you know, in this whole thing is the force of the lie. Think what is denied. You won't die. You'll be like God's knowing good. And death, by the way, throughout Scripture, is connected with the deception. But it's always the same deception. In other words, that lie in Genesis 3, 4, this is what Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 28 when he talks about the covenant with death. 
This is what Jesus talks about when he encounters the Pharisees and says, your father, you know, you speak the native language of your father who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In other words, the idea of sin is connected to a deception, but a particular deception. They're thinking Genesis 3, 4. Uh, and this, is, this also then connects to the, the psychoanalytic understanding. This deception is death-dealing in that we take up this negativity, we take up in this, uh, I mean, it's violence, that's, what I'm, that's where I'm headed with this, that we become, we are violent, we are subject to the death drive, and of course this is the most mysterious part of a lie. You know, you have the, 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 the medium, you have the object, but what, not, what doesn't appear in the lie is usually the main thing about a lie, right? The thing the lie is negating, the thing the lie is you know, denying, becomes the force. You know, this is, if you, if you, another approach to this is, by the way, in Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard will talk about, you know, there's the, uh, there's the third term is what Kierkegaard, well, the third term is either the absence of God or God himself. Um, and so in the deception, the law is a means of establishing the self, but it is precisely the self that has become the site of a de- destructive desire. And so, uh, you know, this is you could do, I have a whole section here, but I better leave it out. Uh, that Jesus then in uh, Luke 11 talks about the, Sadd- the Pharisees and the scribes in terms of their death dealing, you know, you're like concealed tombs. You're like graves that men walk over. Uh, and then he does the history of m- murder. Uh, he's saying, I'm just, I'm revealing to you why people, why did Cain kill Abel? Why was Zechariah murdered? You know, he did, that's the beginning and end of murder. I'm telling you this now, he's saying in, in Luke 11. And he's running this down. It's their zealousness. In other words, he's citing that you always kill the prophets and you're going to kill me. And then they say, no, we're not. And then they say, let's get him. You know, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, it, it's a tragic thing that he's exposing. But let my last point here then is with all of this then, what I've just been describing to you, I think is, is uh, not available to us consciously. In other words, I I believe that Paul is saying that. And by the way, when Paul refers to why Jesus died, he's going to refer to a sacrifice in the Old Testament that talks about an unwitting sin, a sin that people are not aware of. He's saying that the reason Jesus died is chapter 7 of Romans. And he specifies then that it is this, we've been deceived in regard to our own sinfulness. Um, of course, for Freud, this is the very positing of the unconscious. You know, if there's a lie, that's no mystery. Oh yeah, what happens in a lie? You refuse certain things. You refuse certain conscious understandings. The way that we experience this then is not that we can articulate it, but we experience deception. We experience this construct where Paul began in desire. Desire is the immediate experience of deception. Um, this is, you know, 
uh, it's the uh, Paul says we do not have you know I did not know what it was to desire he's just you know the, the question here throughout is who is this I I think that this is Paul's understanding as a Christian of what he was like and what humanity is like outside of Christ it's his pre-Christian self but it's an understanding that he's able to articulate because of Christ he's now he's now able to say what this thing is uh, this is where Lacan and Zizek get very interesting in, in their picture of desire and this is the um, uh, the thing that Lacan he, he uses the word jouissance and he means by jouissance pure evil or jouissance is the this it's a word for desire but he didn't want to use the normal word desire because this desire is what gives rise to evil um, he says jouissance names the desire to break through the pleasure principle towards the thing that holds out an excess of pleasure Thus, Lacan, he links it to the path towards death. Where the neurotic aims at jouissance by a simultaneous acknowledgement of the law and the attempt to snatch back from the other part of the stolen jouissance, the pervert directly elevates the enjoying big other into the agency of the law. In the pervert's perspective, pleasure is denied by the agency of the law because this other wants all the pleasure. What am I describing as jouissance? This is the pervert. You know, oh, God wants all the pleasure. He's holding out on us. Or the big other. By the way, you know, the, the Zizek's point here is that it doesn't help to be an atheist. Just any atheist. Because we always posit this big other. You know, the, the idea of the law. And, you know, this is, and what we're describing, of course, is this internal relationship uh, to ourselves. So jouissance is the pure substance of the death drive. We cannot avoid, this is Lacan, we cannot avoid the formula um, that jouissance is evil. Uh, the suffering and pain that jouissance calls for is a masochistic evil. But as Lacan makes clear, it is the pain and suffering of the neighbor as well. It is suffering because it involves suffering for my neighbor. He quotes Freud here. Freud even recognized this in the, in the death drive. Man tries to satisfy his need for aggression at the expense of his neighbor to exploit his work without con compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to appropriate his goods, to humiliate him, to inflict suffering on him, to torture and kill him. In other words, death drive is not just, oh, we die. But its death drive is this violence that, that we deal in. Um, so Paul says that the I is set upon a course that is a kind of living death. Sin became alive and I died. And it was a f sin affecting my death. And of course the cry at the end of Romans 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Has he just been describing Christianity? I hope that if nothing else from the end of this talk you can sit today and say no no Romans 7 is not about being it's not about the normal Christian life Romans 7 is about failed humanity um, 
for Zizek, that's the, you know, Zizek, Romans 7 is it. He says, well, you have the pervert in Romans 7, but you also have the hysteric. And Paul is a hysteric. That is, he's questioning. And by the way, ladies, in a Lacanian system, the feminine position, the, the idea of, is, is the privileged one because it's the feminine that is, tends towards hysteria, which for Zizek is a good thing. <laughs> that's better than... And the, the, the masculine, and he doesn't actually, he doesn't really mean gender here, but it, I think it, uh, the masculine tends toward perverseness. The masculine is to identify completely, you know, you, you know the kind of perverse relationship to the law. Um, so what I've described to you, you know, there is a lack in human life. That's death. That's the, the death drive. Uh, and what I want to say about violence violence then is understood as a destructive conflict a destructive antagonism that is definitive of subjectivity and I believe can be equated with Paul's picture of sin any questions I think do we have another paper yes so I think we just have not time for questions probably Okay, all right. The other paper uh, is, is a short one. John, I'm going to read just a short section from his paper. Okay. Uh, but so I will, if, there, if there's... I'm sure that there's like 20 minutes until three. Yeah, this is about a five-minute read, I think. Okay. So... What was your, what was your dissertation? You said your dissertation was on Gizek? Yeah, the, my, my book if you, is uh, TNT Clark, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation. Uh, is the name of my book. It, uh, unfortunately, it's priced like TNT Clark often price things. But uh, and uh, an analysis of the meaning of the death of Christ in light of recent psychoanalytic theory. So it's actually it's I, what I did today as a kind of summation of a just of my history.